You're listening to the Save the Marriage Podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Have you ever had that moment in, in parenting where you're just like, man, what have I done here, right? Where, what do I do now? H- how do I get to this next place? Because I'm, I'm not being the parent I want to be. Well, that moment happened for Larry Hagner. He's my guest today. Uh, Larry is at thedadedge.com, thedadedge.com. And that's exactly what happened. And, and Larry's going to tell us a story about how he got to this point where he realized that he had to do something different. And instead of just kind of giving up, giving in, maybe even just reading a book, he went in search of information on how to be a better dad, how to be not just a better dad, but a better man. And so as we talk through today, we're going to talk about a lot of ideas that uh, he has uh, learned and and is now sharing with others in his own process of mastery um, and how he has brought that to other people. So join me now as I have a conversation with the Dad Edge founder, Larry and Larry is going to tell us all about his own journey. Join me now with Larry Hagner. Larry, thank you so much for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're talking about such an important thing about family life and about what all that means. But before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about how you got to here. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you, you got to this point. Well, so, well, thank you for having me. Um, just a quick side note, I had you on my show. Absolutely enjoyed having you there. That was fantastic. I know me and the audience, we learned a ton. Uh, as far as me and and how I got into the the dad edge or the dad, the dad space is, it's about 11 years ago. Um, I woke up, it was, a, it was a beautiful Sunday morning. You know, the, the sunlight was shining through the windows and I looked outside and I, I just, I had this epiphany that I, I knew everything there was to be, being a better husband and father and all the answers just came to me. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, this is too good to be true. I just have to share this stuff with the world. So <laughs> it was not anything like that. <laughs> it was not anything like that at all. I, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a very dark moment, you know, if I'm being honest with you, Dr. Lee. Um, and by you the know, way, you, you know, that epiphany you just shared, that's an epiphany yeah. of somebody who's about to just launch into some really dark stuff and getting themselves into trouble. So right, right, <laughs> let's go yeah. with the real, <laughs> let's get there we'll, real. We'll go with the real story. So I'll yeah. start, I'll start with, um, like the moment that things started. Uh, so it was 2011. I had two sons at the time, six and four, and had been married at that point in time for eight years. And I really struggled uh, as a as a husband and father. Uh, I, I didn't beat anybody. I didn't hit anybody. I I, I wasn't like uh, calling people names in alcoholic rage or anything like that. But what I was, what I truly wanted more than anything, and I'll get to like my background, was is I wanted an incredible marriage and connection with my wife. It was so important to me. I, I wanted to be married only once, and I wanted it to be as fulfilling as possible. And the same thing with my kids, because how I grew up. And unfortunately, I was not being that man. Uh, for the first six years of my kid's life, um, I kind of just did, you know, fatherhood from out here. It, it, this is sort of a really weird story, but like the story I was telling myself back then is that I want to be good at this so much, but if I get too close and because I know deep down I, had, I have no clue what I'm doing, maybe if I sort of do it from a distance, 
I can't screw them up too bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And, um, and I was, I wasn't the most patient father. I wasn't the most patient person with even myself. I was like this massive critic within myself. There were two areas of my life where I got an incredible amount of validation. And that was in my work. I was really, really great with my career. I was one of those guys. I was in medical device sales. I was always winning awards. I was getting promoted. I think it was from 2007 to 2011. I was promoted four times. So I was promoted four times over four years. Got a lot of attaboys in the workplace. So I dove a lot of my time and validation in there. And then at the time, which I know something you and I have in common is uh, it was it was on my bucket list to become a black belt in, in martial arts. And I was pursuing that. And I was going to class like three times a week, putting a lot of time and energy into that. And that's where I got like a lot of those attaboys. And it was in 2011, my four-year-old, he stepped out of line as any four-year-old would, age appropriate, right? And had a really bad day that day. Uh, lost one of my biggest customers that was going to impact our income for the next six to six to eight months. And uh, was just really in my head. And I was packing up his playroom because we were getting ready to move. And I hate moving more than life. Like anything, in life, I just hate moving. Like just hate it. And um, packing up his playroom, I was really pissed off. And my son comes downstairs after three hours of packing up his playroom. And, and I said, Hey, I'm going to go take a break. Do, do dad a favor, please. And do not unpack anything that I put in these boxes that I've been spending three hours doing. And I come downstairs a half hour later. And of course, what does a four-year-old do? He pulls out all of his toys. Like for me to think you do anything. Favor. Yeah. <laughs> right? These weren't packed right. Yeah. Anyway. Let me help you. <laughs> so in a, in like a second of absolute rage and I was so pissed off. I was like, I, I spanked him. And I, I swore to myself, I'm never going to put my hands on my kids. Cause I was, I was beat up pretty, pretty good as a kid by my, my parents and men that came in and on my life. And I hit him on, on the, on the rear end and I hit him so hard. He hit the ground. And I was like, Oh, I was like, what, what, what did I just do? And I went to go help him up. And he looked at me like he was terrified. He actually even like shuddered a little bit. And I was like, oh my God, like, what have I done? And I go to pick him up and he's crying. And my wife, who is extremely respectful and appreciative and never talks down to me ever in the 25 years I've known her, never calls me out on anything when she does, she does. But when she does, it's very rare. And when she does, man, do I listen? Cause I know she's right. And she looked at me and she was like, God, really? She's like, he's four, Larry, he's four. And I'm like, and she never talks to me like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what did I just do? And so I went in my office. I was upset. I was crying. And what do we do as adults when we get upset? We go distract. At that point in time, Facebook was somewhat big, not, not huge yet like it is now. So I got on social media like anybody else wants just to not think about what just happened. I'm crying. And all these like memories of like getting hit as a kid, you know, being abandoned by your father, you know, and like, all this stuff, like, what am I doing? And I don't know what it was. I'm, I'm a very faith-based person. I honestly think God had a hand in it because on the lower left-hand corner of Facebook, there was this button that said, create a page. I never created a page. And I hit that button and the thing came up, what do you want to name your page? And just the words, the good dad project just rattled off my heart and onto that keyboard. And I thought to myself, I, I have to figure this out. Like I've got to figure this out because this is not going the way I intended and it's got to be better. And I just started thinking, I was like, man, like 
what are things that I'm good at in life? And be honest, like there, there aren't many, but there's a couple. And I was like, I'm really good at my job and I'm, I'm pretty good at martial arts. What, what are some common denominators there? Well, I'm always like eager to learn from feedback from my bosses and mentors. Like, Hey, how can I be better? How can I craft my sales style? How can I relate to people better? How can I do all these things better, 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 learn, 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 learn. And then I looked at martial arts. I'm like, well, why is martial arts going pretty well? Well, I go to class every single week and I'm learning something new every single week. And then I practice every single week and I'm implementing things. And I'm like, what am I, what have I done to learn about fatherhood? What have I learned to learn about patients? What have I learned to how, how to communicate with Jessica, man, I haven't done anything since marriage prep. And I certainly haven't done anything in parenting. No wonder I'm like, just feel like I'm completely shooting in the dark, which by the way, the critic in my head, I was constantly telling myself, you're not a good father. You're not a patient father. You don't know what you're doing. And which was terrible. And I finally just surrendered that night. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn as much as I can. And this page, like I never did it for a following, but this page is going to be here. So I'm going to go out and learn something new every day. I'm just going to post it here as a record for like myself. And hopefully that will help me learn how to do this better. Cause right now I'm terrible at it. And I'm probably harder on myself than I should be, but I, I felt I was. And that journey then turned into, uh, you know, after six, seven months of it being asked to speak at, at, at men's groups and women's groups at churches, which I was blown away. Like the first time I was actually asked to speak, like I, it was this mom group uh, at a church, 350 moms. And they invited me to speak. And I'm like, what, what do you want me to speak about? And they're like, oh, we want you to come speak on fatherhood. And I was like, you got the wrong guy. I was like, I'm an idiot at this. And they're like, no, 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 that's what we really like. Like the fact that you're just, it's everyday life for a man. You're just being very open about it. So that lasted a couple of years, 2015, I launched the podcast, been doing the podcast ever since. Um, and we've had a mastermind for men now for the past, ever since 2016, helping men. Uh, but what I can tell you is that, man, I, I've learned so much in the past 12 years doing this work, still learning, um, still an idiot with a lot of things, still making mistakes every single day. Um, but it is, it saved my, it has saved my marriage. Um, it has saved the relationship with my kids. Um, it is probably be quite honest. It saved my life. Um, if I'm being real, because I would, I probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this. It's a lot of, um, uh, kind of trauma background to that. And uh, that's what kind of teaches us our, our basic place to when, ha what happened to us when we we're growing up. We have these trauma events that then shape us. And so as hard as sometimes you, you try not to let that in, if you have no other alternative, somewhere the, that switch is just waiting for the right moment to go up, oh, trauma direction. And that just happened to be that, that moment. And what I like about that story is you went, wait, that's not going to be, because a lot of people would go, Oh, that worked. He, he's scared of me now. Now he'll do what I want. Right. And, and you would go back to the old, uh, tapes that uh, you, you learned. And instead you went, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to learn some new approaches, it's the growth mindset. Uh, that's what I, I was sitting there the whole, the whole time you were talking about it. It's adopting that growth mindset of, uh, I can learn, I can do better, but it does tell us how hard it is sometimes to not have those old tapes, just flip on just for the slightest thing. So true. So you talked a little bit about patience. 
I happen to know that that's kind of a topic for you. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, where that came from and how how you see what how you understand that. Yeah. So patience. You're doing this work, I, I struggled with patience uh, with early in my in my dad journey. You know, if I'm being very honest, it's it's still a struggle. And what I've noticed is, is there are, and I would love for you to dissect this in any way, shape or form. You have a lot of credentials behind your name and this is my understanding of it, but I want you, I would love for you to chime in and reflect what you hear. What I've noticed with men and myself is that there's two types of things that challenge us with our patients. One is like, Hey, whatever is happening externally could be my kids are doing this or this is challenging. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's finances or whatever. It's, it's a challenge that's happening externally. So let's just call it um, like the, the situation with my son when he was four. I'm like, man, I just told this kid not to do this. And you lose your patience and you do something, right? And then, and even whether or not you do something, there's this critic in your head that even isn't patient with yourself. It's like, and the stories that sometimes that we tell ourselves, like, it's like, man, if I say something that I didn't mean to my kid, you know, and even if I go back to my kid and say, Hey, I am really sorry about that. I shouldn't have said that to you. What I've noticed even with my own kids is that they're pretty resilient. They're like, dad, it's okay. Like I get it. No, no big deal. But the bully and the critic in my own head will just constantly continue to beat me down and be like, God bless. Are you even really cut out to be a dad? Like how patient are you? And sometimes even now it's like, for God's sake, you're teaching this stuff now. Like why, why can't you get it? And so what I've noticed is it's like, it's like when you cut your arm, you know, that's like the first dose of external patience. And then the story that we tell ourselves, the critic is like, I'm just going to take this salt and pour it right in. Or oh, that feels even worse. Right. Let me grind so it a little bit, you know, <laughs> yeah, let me just grind it. Yeah. But what I've noticed is that we as men in our society and even our own perception, the story that we're telling ourselves is that we live this life of quiet desperation and even isolation and not even physical isolation, but mental and emotional isolation to where every question that's asked of us, whether it's from our acquaintances, maybe it's, it's men in our lives is good, fine, and busy. It's like, we never want to let men, other people know, like, man, some of these areas of my life, I'm really struggling. Right? So we take the world on all by ourselves. What, and that's what it feels like to us. And we don't have that outlet. We don't have that tribe. We don't maybe even have like just a small band of brothers that we can have more in-depth conversations with around marriage or parenting or even patients. So we're going at these things alone, these challenges. Many of us are not learning new skills to be more patient, which helps, which makes us lose our patience more often. And then when we lose our patience more often, we're hard on ourselves, which we're not patient with ourselves. So it's really trying to learn the skill sets of emotional resiliency and being more patient, creating more space between reaction and response. And I honestly believe that there are ways that there are things that we can do in our, in our day-to-day that can e- either build more patience or we're doing things in our day that's decimating it to where we feel that we have nothing left in our tank and our patience is at its end by the time the end of the day even comes. It seems to me that that is, um, that you just named at the end, the resource question, you know, what am I bringing with me? How much have I left in the tank, so to speak? Um, and it's as if there has to be a certain level to 
to keep it tamped down and the it tamped down. I've got a, I've got a follow-up question for you on that, but you're talking about the resources, you know, at the end of the day, what's left, how am I adding resources in versus how am I depleting it? And, um, one of your points is that men don't have a lot of, um, sources for you. It was the attaboys from work, attaboys at the gym from, uh, martial arts. And that was the two places that you had. So if one got damaged, for instance, that day, you know, you're dealing with a lost, you're feeling probably self-critical about the lost client. And there's one less layer to that. And it's just enough to, to not have it. Is that, does that feel? That feels right. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that occurred to me is, um, how much patience is attached to, um, a realization that we don't have control over things that we would like to be able to control. I think that that is very accurate. Yeah. So, uh, I, I've always, uh, talked about the fact that, you know, we usually don't get upset about things over which we absolutely can say, I don't have control. If it's raining, I don't go, Oh gosh, I should have stopped that. You know, (laughs) right. Just, I don't, my money may not like it, but I'm not going to lose a lot of, um, frustration over it mm-hmm. where we do tends to be the things that we have either come to believe that we should be able to have control over, um, or, uh, wishing we had control over. And I totally agree. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just, uh, your story is you say to your, your four-year-old, leave the boxes alone. Mm-hmm. And you would like to think that has some level of control, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) Except for four-year-olds do what four-year-olds do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that leaves us with trying to figure out what do you do with that when you don't have control. Mm -hmm. And that kind of feels like that's where those tapes get replayed. I I think you're, I mean, obviously you're dead on. And I think, um, you know, if you really think about, what we have control over it's how we respond right it's like what can i do right now when i'm being challenged in the moment like so i i know you're in jujitsu right so you could be going up against an opponent that maybe you know from past experiences could completely and totally dominate you right and you're so focused on like there's so many things that he's gonna do to me that I can't control yet. I know some things that I can do once I'm in, maybe he's got me in a rear naked choke. Maybe he's got this or that. Okay. Like being able to, okay, he's got me here. So how might I respond or do something a bit different versus trying to control him, but maybe control myself and my response to what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, uh, so white belt world, um, you're always getting beat by the <laughs> people with more experience unless they just kind of let you do something. Yeah. The, the the interesting thing is how good they suddenly become when you hit blue belt and you thought as a white belt, you were doing really well and they were just letting you, you know, kind of move forward a little bit. But I remember, um, the, one of the things that my white belt, I was, I, I just didn't want to get submitted. So if you don't want to get submitted, you try to lock everything down as best you can, but you never learn anything other than how to lock down. And I remember, um, in one, at one point the, my opponent said, if you don't let this move any further than this, you're never going to learn. Mm. And the person said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to win if that's what you're afraid of, but you're not going to learn anything. And I suddenly realized I had to 
relinquish that to see where things would go a little bit, you know, to, to not try to control it to the point that nothing would happen either way. I'm not going to submit the person if I'm locked down. They may not be able to submit me if they're good enough, they will. But this person was kind enough to not just immediately do that. Right. And so, um, but we were to stale, basically a stalemate until I went, okay, let's let it go a little bit. Let's see where it goes, which seems to me to be that um, realization that control isn't really working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that, um, I think as parents too, what I've noticed is that we want to, con- we, we have this internal drive that we want to control something that isn't really controllable. Like, so my 15 year old and I went out to dinner and, um, there was this couple that was next to us and this, they were, they had this baby I don't know, it was probably between like six months and a year or something like that. And this baby was just crying, you know, crying and throwing a fit. And my son looked at me, he's like, why don't they control that kid? And I just laughed. And I was like, uh, that's one of the biggest misconceptions I think is that people think that they can control that kid. And, you know, usually what happens is the harder you were pushing and the more you're trying to dominate, the more that kid will probably in that moment where they're in that mindset, that really like raw, you know, amygdala is firing, they're, they're upset, they're this or that, is that you're going to put gasoline on that fire, right? And I said, to be honest, like, you know, I, I only know to the extent of a 15-year-old, right? You've got three other brothers and but one thing I can tell you is I used to be that person too. be like, why can't this person control the kids crying, especially like on a plane. And now when a kid is screaming and crying on a plane next to me and they look at me like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, dude, I don't worry about it, man. I've been there. I know there's nothing you can really do about it. You're trying everything possible, but it's trying to control something that isn't controllable. And the more we try to resist, the more infuriating it is for us mm-hmm. versus like just accepting the fact, like doing everything I can control what's going on. Just, yeah. I think about how many times I watch parents make the mistake of, um, uh, feeling like anything their child is doing is a reflection on them. And I think that's another button that pushes this, the patient's thing, the control thing. Um, years ago, um, I didn't get called to the principal's office for my kids very often, but I remember one time and I was there with my son and I turned to the, I think vice principal, whatever he was. And I said, I'm so sorry this happened. And he looked at me, he said, I never want a parent to apologize for the actions of their child. It's on the child. And I went, okay. Mm. I I was partly just being polite, but (laughs) you're good point that, um, you know, that's, that's a piece that we though as a parent have to realize that what a child does is often not often, it is a choice that they're choosing that route, right there. And many times what a parent wants is to alleviate, you can see the suffering coming, right? You can see how it's going to be a hard time, but they don't have control over that. And I think that's one of the things that uh, feels true about the patient's piece is how tightly it's tied into the desire to control and the um, reality that you don't. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So as you work through that, tell me more, uh, working with other men, how do you help them to um, be more patient, I guess, is a piece of it, but to understand patience better so they can activate it? Yeah, the, the way we teach men is, you know, patience is very much aligned with 
emotional resilience. It's just packaged up and, you know, branded just a little bit differently. There are a lot of things I think that are play in a man's life beyond just that moment where his kid does this, or this is going on in his marriage or this bad email comes from your boss or whatever it is. Right. It's like, uh, sometimes the, the loss of patience is the death by a thousand cuts, but a lot of these things can be prevented. So I, I teach, I teach a course actually online called creating more patience and just helping men build more resilience in their life just by not necessarily what to do in the moment, but what to do to help prevent those things, basically helping men have a better mindset around these things. So like, I'll give you an example. One of the things that I'm a big believer in is do not check your, your mobile device within the first 60 minutes you wake up because you know, you're still in this state of mind where you're waking up and your brain is fresh. And a lot of us use our, our devices for alarm clocks. We open it up and we're immediately triggered by something, or we're immediately on, on somebody else's agenda, or somebody immediately needs something from us. Like, I'm usually very good about this. This morning, I wasn't. And I started reading through text messages. I went to my email. I swiped right on, on the phone. Immediately, I saw what's going on in the Ukraine. And I, had not, I hadn't even been up 45 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of firing, right? I was triggered already. And I hadn't even gotten out of my bed to go, you know, get dressed for the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I always, we always tell men, be very, very cognizant about what you're doing in the morning because your morning routine can help you set your day up the odds in your favor for more success during the day. So if you're checking your mobile device and getting triggered by what you see in the political arena or your stocks, you know, in, in the market have just tanked, or, you know, you're, you're 15 emails deep already and you haven't even gotten out of bed. And, you know, you, ne you need to make sure that you have time, space, and energy for you yourself in the morning. Like for me, um, one of the things that me, I'm taking my oldest right now through um, a, a mentorship called Operation Timothy, which is, which is a Bible study uh, where, you, where someone is a Timothy and one's a Paul. And what I can tell you is the 30 minutes that we spend together every single morning is incredibly therapeutic. And it's such a brilliant start to the day. And even my son will tell me, and he and I have been talking about it here recently, which is, man, the days are just a little different when we start like that. Right. So the start of the day is, is one of the, one of the avenues that I see men either that that first domino that falls either in your favor or it could fall to decimate what resilience you have for that day. That's an interesting point because that is, so I'm going to stick on the control thing for a minute. It yeah. is what you talked about of looking at the stocks that you can't control the news. You can't control the text messages that have already happened. The emails, somebody else's agenda, you can't control. All of those things are putting you outside of what you can't control. And what you just described is going, no, I can control this morning. And so I'll choose to enter into it. It's not the same as trying to control your son into being a part of that study, but you can control how your morning is structured that allows for a different start, which leaves you a starting point of going, okay, I've, I've got the day versus, oh, the day's got me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, I never really, I, I love that because I never thought about that, the, the control versus the uncontrolled, right? But you're right. I mean, the things that we see, you know, on our phone and in the news and all these other things that, that trigger us, we truly don't have control over a lot of those things. 
the other thing that we see a lot of times too is that, and we talked about this uh, early on, which was men, it's, it's an interesting thing that happens to us. Like if you look at us in childhood and you probably know a, a perspective on this better than anybody, but when we're kids, we're very open to new friendships, new connections. Uh, we're pretty darn authentic. Like we're kind of ourselves or whoever we are in that when we're that with those ages, we go to college, we're open to new friendships and relationships. We don't do life alone. We're always in community. We're always with our other fellow students, you know, then we graduate college or high school or whatever, master's degree, PhD. And then we enter into the career world where we then, you know, usually get married, start a family. Then this pattern of more, I would say, isolation starts to happen in particular with men. So men seem to have like this guilty conscience of like, I either need to spend time in two realms of my life, family or work, work or family. And I don't deviate time with friends. Eh, like we'll go years without talking to people that we were so close with back in, back in college or back in our early twenties. And we start to do this thing where we kind of, where we lone wolf a lot of things. Right. And we'll have these surface level conversations. You know, we just don't have the time. We don't have the energy. we got a lot of things going on at work, a lot of things going on with the family, trying to keep everybody happy, trying to keep everybody focused. And what happens to us usually is that we're just not in community whatsoever. And we're then faced with obstacles, new things that within our family, now we're raising kids. And it's like, man, I feel like I am on total uncharted ground here. I have no, it's, it's almost like if you were to go back to the analogy of college, right? Going to college, you're the only student on campus. You're the only student in the classrooms. You're the only student in the dorm rooms. And that's your entire college experience. And that's what it almost feels like for most men, not physically, but mentally and emotionally, that when we're trying to navigate the waters of marriage, new life, new career, new obligations, uh, navigate being a parent for the first time, we really withdraw from a lot of people, which when we're taking on, when we have that perception of we have to take on the world all by ourselves, that is definitely going to mess with our resilience. It's definitely going to mess with our patience. And the final thing I'll say about that as well is that, as you know, too, it's the story that men continue to tell themselves. So when they're navigating those waters that they're not very familiar with, you know, whether it's parenting or, or, or marriage or whatever, and we're, we're, we're just sort of meandering our way through it. We start to, we start to say things to ourselves like, man, I'm a father. Shouldn't I be more patient? Shouldn't I know how to do this better? Why can't I get a handle on this? Why isn't this what I thought it would be? Why can't I connect with my wife or communicate with her like I want? Man, I must be messed up. And nothing is further from the truth, right? But these are the stories that we tell ourselves, which definitely hinder our patience and resilience. So that you brought up the whole growth piece, community and growth, they, they tend to go hand in hand. I mean, somebody's got to be a part of your growth. Um, but it, it, it's just interesting how you, you talk about that, because if you've never if you've never been taught something, why should you know how to do it? Right. Um, and we do this in the rest of life though, right? I mean, in your sales job, you said that you would take in the advice of people yeah. and, and that would help you restructure things. And so you never went, oh, I should be able to sell this better. Instead, you went, how could I sell this better? Who could help me sell this better? Um, martial arts. I mean, you don't go in going, well, I should have a black belt, you know, first class. <laughs> I should know how right. to do this. Right. Um, you don't get a download like, you know, in the matrix or something. You yeah. You earn it one piece at a time. Yeah. And one of the reasons I saw a lot of people never come back is because 
they thought they should be able to know how to do something. And there's no reason to. Um, and the same is true in relationships. If, and especially, and I think one of the things you're kind of pointing to is that we're, we're still in a transition period um, in the world where um, I was fortunate. My, my father was more emotionally available than lots of fathers are, but they, he was in a generation that was trying to figure that out. And the generation above that, there was no emotion availability. You go do your job, you come home, you read the paper, everybody around you does their thing, and that's what you do. And so a lot of men are still coming out of that where there isn't a good um, emotional intelligence um, uh, teacher at home. And then we're, you know, we still are getting messages by coaches saying, suck it up, walk it off, quit crying. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make you cry if you keep doing, I mean, it's all those messages that are still running around that often leave men going, I, I, I'll just hide my emotions, you know, and, and once you start doing that, there's not much room for patience. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I have a couple of points on that, um, which really emerged for me as you were talking. Um, number one, I'm wearing a shirt that says man up. And which, by the way, I hate that term. I'm actually wearing it because it's my favorite workout shirt. And as soon as we're done with this podcast, me and my 14 year old are going to the gym. Um, but I can't stand that, that, uh, that, that statement to men, man up or grow a set, right? Or whatever it is. Well, however we talk to each other. Because that doesn't do anybody any good. Like usually if, if a man comes to another man and, or, or in a group of men, like, man, like I'm really trying to elevate the connection with my wife. I'm trying to communicate with her. Like we haven't been intimate in so long. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. And we, we say this all the time. Um, guys who come do life with us is if you hear that term from one of, from a man, you, you won't hear it in our community, but if you hear it outside the community, man up, grow a set that usually number one, that's terrible strategy. It's not giving the guy any new ideas. And number two, it says more about them than it does about you because clearly they just don't know what to tell you. They don't know what skill set to tell you. And that's probably what they were told growing up. Like that's how you toughen up. Like I remember my stepdad is my mom's second marriage and the guy was former military. And every time I cried and he was around from the time I was five to 10. So of course there's gonna be periods of tears in those years, right? Only babies cry, man up. You don't cry in front of me. And I am not that way with my kids. I would never be that way with my kids. And I don't really think that's how men should even talk to each other, especially when there's authenticity and vulnerability that that's there. And I think that's also a signal you probably have the, the wrong group of men in your life. And by the way, the reason I have this shirt on is because one of my friends is uh, Bedros Koulian, oh, yeah. who this is his book, yeah. <laughs> Man Up. Yep. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that there's definitely that going on. The other thing too is um, it's, I don't know, I think you're, you're dead on with this emotional intelligence thing because we were raised, you know, my generation, we were raised, and I think the generation before that too, men were providers, men didn't have a whole lot of emotional intelligence, but they kind of really weren't expected to either. Like they provided, they, they brought home the money, they put food on the table. I'm here, I'm your protector. It's, it's what I do. And I think a lot of men in our generation, we really wanted more from our dads. We wanted to have, do life with dad. We wanted to get to know dad. We want get dad to get to know us, you know? And I think the guys, to be quite honest, they did the best they could with what they had, but that's what their role was. And I think our generation of men now, 
we have these generation of fathers out there now between, between the ages of 25 and 50 and, and they're hungry, they're eager. And they're like, I want more with my kids. And the, I think the gap is, is like, I just don't know what it looks like. And I have no clue where to start. And we still have this perception of ourselves of like, well, if I ask for help, am I weak? Or if I ask for help, am I totally broken? And I don't want anybody to see that. And I think that's unfortunate because as, as you know, because you, you've been in this coaching space and coaching men and couples, as soon as you're with a group of men and one man raises his hand and says, guys, I need some advice. Like I, I need help with my marriage. You know, Jessica and I are just off. Communication's not on point. Our intimacy is not where it should be. What are you guys doing in your life? I guarantee that the men that you're surrounding yourself with be like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked that. Because now we get to talk about it, mm -hmm. right? But it takes that man to go past that perception of himself that if I say this, I'm not broken. If I say this, maybe I'll do a service to somebody else. And if I say this, maybe I'll get some crowdsource wisdom from my band of brothers of guys who are doing this better than I am, right? And it's not a, uh, and I think this is the other piece that sneaks in there. It's not a, I'm inferior if I have to help or I have to ask for help. Um, and I think that's the, the layer that's still back there. There's this competitive thing that a lot of people struggle with of, um, if I show my weakness, I'm inferior. If I ask a question, I'm inferior. Um, and that's there, there's that competition, um, uh, that, that has to be let go of. Um, I think. I'm pretty clear that there's no such thing as the Renaissance man anymore, where, you know, everything there is to know <laughs> that is impossible. <laughs> right. So, uh, the fact that somebody knows something better than me, that would be helpful for me mm -hmm. unless we feel like it's a competition that's going to prove that I, I am inferior. And, uh, so I, what I love about, uh, mastermind, uh, uh, opportunities is, um, you know, you get to go, I'm not the smartest person here and I have something to learn. Um, the place where you get in a danger is going, yeah, I think I'm the smartest one here. Um, I'm the best. And that's a, that's a long fall, generally speaking. I think it is as well. And I wanted to go back to one other thing that I think will really speak volumes to what you do with jujitsu and martial arts and the black belt scenario you were talking about. And I think this will help men maybe breathe a fresh breath of fresh air. It's kind of crazy to think, you know, think of um, an engineer and all the training that goes into being a, a civil engineer, mechanical engineer, whatever that is, or how much work it went into going and getting a PhD, right? You didn't just show up to campus and they're like, oh, it's your first day. Congratulations, PhD, Dr. Lee, here you go. I had uh, Frankie Edgar who on the podcast twice, and he's a UFC Hall of Famer. He actually holds the record for the most amount of minutes in the, in the UFC cage of any fighter over the years. And I interviewed him. And then he interviewed me on his podcast and we were talking about this perception and I, and Frankie Edgar's 140 pounds. I'm 180 pounds. And I said, I go, Frankie, I was like, let me ask you something. I was like, what would it be like for you? If you just woke up one day, you, you had no experience with wrestling growing up or anything. And you're like, I think I'm going to go to the UFC. Yeah. And you just like walked in and started fighting. Like, how do you think you would do? And he just started laughing. And I said, and you know, kind of add insult to injury. I was like, let, let me just raise my hand and say, you know what, with all your years of experience, Frankie, I was like, I'm going to get in the cage with you mm -hmm. and I'm just going to see what happens. And we all know what would happen. You would absolutely pummel me. And here's the funny thing. If I were to look at that fight and I knew I got pummeled without any training, I would be pretty forgiving of myself because I'd be like, well, I didn't train for it. Right. Of course I got pummeled. And then anybody who saw the fight, my friends and family would be like, 
well, yeah, of course you got pummeled. You didn't train for it. Right. But, but somehow, some way, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to patience, when it comes to, as you know, connecting within your marriage, like it's entering into the cage with no training, expecting that we're going to go win. And then when we're not winning, we think we're terrible. Like why I should be this, I should be one of the best fighters on the planet. It should come naturally to me. And we just, we laughed about that. And he's like, man, I never, I never even thought of it that way, but that is so true. And then we're quiet about it too, to where like, yeah, I don't know what happened. I should have done better. And people around us have like, but you didn't, you didn't learn anything. All you did was step in the cage of the pro fighter. You shouldn't have expected anything less. Well, and as, as you were talking uh, early on, you're like, uh, you know, being married, most people, at least their first marriage is the first time they've been married. I mean, they, and yeah. if it's a second marriage, they likely didn't get it right the first time. <laughs> yeah. Continue on down. And so that's your, uh, your, it's like on the job training. Um, nobody tells you how to do that. And you got to figure it out, bumps and bruises along the way. Same with parenting. Um, nobody tells you how to do that. And I don't know why we lose track of that. Your, your point was, why would you know how to do that without studying, without for you starting a Facebook page or, you know, looking for the advice? Um, that to me is, um, it's, there's the, um, there's an ego involved there that most people miss. If I think I should know it, that's, that's narcissism. Uh, if I admit that I don't know it, that's realism. You know, I, I can start to do it. So talk a little bit about what you've done with that. I mean, so you start off with this page, you started speaking some, how did that evolve and what do you do with that? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I started speaking and it was really just about a day in the life of our minds as fathers and husbands, you know, and the things that, so like the first event that I did for all these women, they really enjoyed it. And I was surprised that they enjoyed it, to be quite honest, because I'd never spoken in front of anybody before. And I was like, gosh, if I'm going to get up and speak, like, shouldn't I know something about the topic or at least bring them some value? And I guess the value that I brought them at the time was, um, gosh, I really don't know what I'm doing and I'm really struggling with this. And it really resonated with them. In 2013, I was like, you know, maybe there's something here, you know, that because it really brought me a ton of joy and it was very therapeutic to just continually learn about these topics. And so I started a blog in 2013. I, I opened up uh, gooddadproject.com and I actually got pretty burnt out on writing for two years and didn't get a whole lot of traction. Um, and not that I, I wasn't worried about the whole traction thing. I just found that I didn't find a whole lot of joy in writing. It was like, I was kind of doing my own research and podcasting started to become somewhat of a thing back then. And uh, I was just like, I wonder if I started a podcast because I, I enjoy having conversation, experiential learning through conversations, right. Versus writing. And I was like, I wonder if I started a podcast, if I could just have better conversations and, and learn just right along with the audience and just interview experts on their topic. And I prayed about it. And the funny thing was, is I, it was kind of a joke at the time I had 10 ideas for 10 shows. And then after that, I was on, on God's <laughs> good humor <laughs> and, uh, and those 10 shows went and the first year we didn't get a whole lot of traction. And then it was, I'll never forget. It was episode 46. So it was right out, right around the year mark. I interviewed my first big person on the podcast and that was Carlos Condit, who is a UFC fighter. And he came on and was, I was so nervous. And I remember just how authentic this guy, I was starstruck because I had seen him on TV so many times and he was just such a real guy 
talking about these topics of marriage and fatherhood. And I was like, man, that, that conversation felt so easy. And he's this guy. Well, then after that, more and more guests started coming forward. I interviewed Matthew McConaughey last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of these, um, um, Jack Canfield, as you know, because you, you mentioned him on my, on my podcast, um, but all these high level, amazing people, pro athletes and Navy SEALs and, and celebrities and lead singers of rock bands and stuff like that. Just, it just became very easy to book them because we had been booking so many amazing people. And one thing that I can tell you, my wife and I were, were talking about this because she's like, don't you get nervous like talking to some of these people? Because I just, I just interviewed John Cooper, who's the lead singer of Skillet. Mm-hmm. And I was like, honestly, I don't that much anymore. Like there's a part of me, right. That's still kind of starstruck by them. But at the same time, what I've noticed when it comes to marriage, when it comes to fatherhood, it doesn't matter who you are. Like we all put our pants on the exact same way. And I'll never forget the final thing I'll say about is my experience with, with McConaughey, you know, McConaughey can say anything and people would believe it because he's Matthew. Right. And so I was interviewing him. We were talking about several things. And then I asked him, I was like, Hey, how do you keep your marriage fresh with Camilla? You guys have been married for 15 years. Um, you know, how do you keep your marriage fresh and on point and dating her and pursuing her and constantly being curious of her? You know, what advice do you have for us? And he just kind of like looked and he's like, <sighs> he's like, man, that's a really good question. And I'll preface his answer with, he could have said anything and we would have believed him and he could have gotten away with it, but he didn't. And he said, as you asked that question, I'm realizing I'm in a season that I'm not very good at that right now. And I was like, really? I was like, well, tell me more. And he goes, man, you know, we're, we're doing sing two right now. You know, we're getting ready for that. And I, I've got this other movie that I'm doing and the kids are, you know, they're, they're in this busy state right now. And there's a lot of things going on for them. He's like, and I've been very, very busy. And to be quite honest, as you asked me that question, I've done a terrible job of that lately. And he's like, and if I'm telling you the successes that I've had in the past, it's, you know, I've, I've always been curious about her or I've, I've taken her out on, on date nights, or we try to get away just the two of us, even if it's just for a night, things like that, where we're constantly making sure that we have time together and it's quality time together. And he's like, and you asked me that question. I just realized I've been really bad at that lately. So I thought that was a pretty humane, human answer for him. Yeah. I mean, it does get us beyond, um, the things that people immediately associate it. There's a star, yeah. there's, right. there's a life behind that. And, and that's right. one of the things I always discover with people is whoever I've talked to as a client. Um, and I've, I've had some, you know, higher level clients and they are behind there a life and, um, and it's exhausting for them to sometimes not be seen, uh, not right. be for real. Talk a little bit about your program. What, what do you do with your program and what do you offer? Sure. So we have a program. We have two programs, actually. One is called Dad Edge Alliance Mastermind. The other one's called Dad Edge Accelerator Mastermind. The Dad Edge Alliance has been around for since 2016. We have about 750 members who are in that program. Uh, we help men literally on the daily. We have 35, call, 35 mastermind call teams per week. And what we do is we create content and skill sets to help these men elevate their marriages, their mindset, uh, the connection with their kids, um, their overall health, physical, mentally, emotional, spiritual health, uh, being a more effective and efficient leader, and also mastering their family finances. Those are the five areas that we help men. And what we do is it's a group coaching environment. 
And we have team captains that lead each one of those. And what we do is we put these men in experiential learning environments. So like our team captains, what we do is we, we create an agenda and a skill set every single month that we help these men through. Uh, however, our facilitators, they're not necessarily the geniuses behind the, the agenda. But what we do create is the environment where these men can learn from each other, from their, from their experiences. Um, so that's, that's that edge Alliance. And then the accelerator that's for our dad business owners. And in that program, we have specific coaches for each one, um, who are a master of their craft. So like, for instance, we have a business coach in that, in that program that helps men specifically with their businesses. We have a marriage coach and then we have a parenting coach as well, but we help men in those three areas, elevate their businesses, scale their impact, as well as create an extraordinary marriage and an, an incredible connection with their kids. So just to be clear, dad edge, you, you, you say it so often, I think you yeah. dead edge, dad edge. <laughs> but it's dad edge, right? And it's the dad edge.com. Yes, sir. And we'll put all of that uh, information in the show notes. Cool. Any final words of advice, Larry? No, just thank you so much for having me on. I, I, I won't finalize the show with advice, but I, I do want to just <laughs> humbly give you a shout out. You came on my show and what I can tell you and, and your audience is that your audience, I'll speak to your audience. Um, you know, Dr. Lee obviously puts a ton of effort and um, heart and soul into his podcast and what he does. And what I can tell you is when he came on my podcast, it was just so many enlightening points that he made so many teaching moments. And what I can say for your audience is they're in very good hands with you. So thank you for what you do. The, the world definitely needs more people like you in the world helping others. Oh, thanks. But I'll, I'll pull the advice out of that from you, which is keep learning, keep growing, right? Yeah. <laughs> find, find the places to do that and, and plug in. That's right. Yeah. All right, Larry, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com. Thank you.